0: Everybody, welcome to another episode of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. Uh, I'm Zach, and I of course have Matt here with me. How you doing, Matt?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a crazy day, just like yourself, and uh, now we get the relaxing part of the day where we get to talk snakes and and meet new people in this hobby. Yeah,
2: I've
0: been I've been looking forward to today, as you said. We did a little bit of talking before the show, but uh, crazy day of teaching. I haven't gone home yet. Uh, and I'm going to be here through the evening, but this is the part I've been looking forward to the most. So uh, as far as new things since the last time we talked with respective collections here at the university, uh, we've had 15 more false water cobras hatch in the never-ending river of false water cobras that we have here at West Liberty University. Uh, That's part of a graduate student's thesis. So those have all been weighed and measured and um, that particular project's ripping and roaring and we have some results that are going to be really interesting for people, I think. Uh, but other than that, there's not really anything new here. Uh, the animals that you sent me, the the beak snakes and the tricolor, are definitely settled in. They're, they've they all eaten at least twice. And there's actually fuzzies in – I keep those in my office here uh, – fuzzies in their tubs. And I'm going to check before I leave, but that might be their third meal. So, Oh, but, wow. Uh, yeah, we're definitely off to the races with those. But no – Semester has started, and I'm trying to keep my head above water, and this is our fun time. So,
1: anywho, what's new with you? Uh, let's see. We hatched out another clutch of cape files, another awesome. clutch of forest files. And then yesterday, I went down to check in on some pairings, and I found a male forest file halfway down the throat of a female, uh-huh. which always kind of, it's a little rough, but, you know, it's <laughs> part of the game you play when you you breed snakes that have an appetite for other reptiles and without going down that road, I mean, obviously we wouldn't have captive born animals respectively of those species, um, which may actually be partly why I'm typically high male on some of those clutches too. Yeah. (laughs) Thinking about natural selection. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Gotcha. (laughs) But that's been about it. Um, nothing too crazy. Um, obviously, Winding en- the end of the year up with some of these clutches, so sort of turning off incubators as I go and uh, just getting animals established. Yeah, that's definitely where where
0: I'm at is is getting the animals established. The Japanese rats that we talked about in our first episode that had hatched. Uh, some people talk about clemmecophra being difficult to get eating, but I've been fortunate. They two of the three have eaten now. I have one. That's being stubborn. Uh, he's probably a day or two away from his first mouse tail, um, just to get him going. But yeah, we've been fortunate this year at West Liberty. I think we're sitting at about, we've hatched between 80 and 100 snakes. So it's not like a giant number, but it's certainly not a small number. And we're not really running into any kind of issues with getting our babies eating. Uh, last year we had lots of issues getting our baby beating. This year not so much. So good to go. You you're still though in baby town with oh. hundreds of babies? <laughs> Is that like an well, accurate statement
1: or it's been interesting, you know, obviously there's been a lack of imports coming in to the, the U S and, and to be honest, I, I think that's actually good because it kind of brings about the fact that we really need to focus on establishing a number of these species in the hobby. Um, that being said, I mean, as animals have been getting established, we've had quite the response towards some of those different species to actually acquire and add to personal collections. But still with that even said, you know, even shipping animals, getting them to new homes, sometimes you'll get customers or um, collectors that they'll have questions, respective of well, this animal isn't feeding. How did you feed it? Things of that nature, and it's amazing to me how many times I've told people to do the the washing of the pinkies with just mm-hmm. Dawn dish soap, and every person that had an issue after washing their pinks, they've all fed on frozen thoughts. Really interesting. So it really kind of brings up some of the different aspects. I always wonder about just the urine scent on pinkies or even just the smell of defrosting, refreezing, just in the not from the individual keeper doing that in their own personal collection, but relative to the industry standards of because a lot of these rodents that are available, you know, they may not even be. Personally bred by those companies, they could be yeah. commercial livestock animals um, that are used in animal testing model facilities. They're just surplus, mm-hmm. um, and obviously they exchange hands multiple times. And you know, if there's any sort of urine on that animal, freezing it is just not going to help. No,
0: no, you're definitely just you know all that waste and feces. It's it's just like the second it died, if you yeah yeah you know it's loaded with it. So yeah. I've I've thought about that stuff as well. I've I've often wondered if um if people actually handling the the pinkies, if if you're using your physical hands, ungloved hands, if we're applying our scent and our oils and our you know chemical cues, and that might be what's going on. Because I have absolutely like you said, and we like we talked about with Clint last time, I've tried to feed animals, and it's weird. Uh, a great example, I've got some Mexican hognose snakes at home. And they were really sporadic in their eating. Sometimes they would, you know, they would take them right off the the forceps. Other times they wouldn't. And I've noticed with those animals, and it could just be dumb luck. I could be barking up the wrong tree. But if I touch those mice at any point in the process, my males will not eat them. But if I like literally pull them out of the bag in the freezer with forceps or with uh latex gloves on and they never make physical contact with me they'll eat them so i apparently stink or something i don't know what the hell's going on on that front but uh, just have that natural
1: oil just to contribute yeah. to it you know? mm-hmm. yeah.
0: but that's an animal that's that kennerly does eat rodents in, in the wild but they're also when they're that size they're feeding almost entirely on herps um so it's you know you're presenting it with an item is. That's not its primary forage. And it's now got this weird smell of a giant naked ape. And what the hell is going on? I could totally see why in its little world, it sees that mouse and thinks like, I'm not eating this. This is not copacetic. Whereas the king snakes, uh, I had some tilapia left over from the garters. And I was, I'm playing this great game with the kings, which is just like, what will it eat? <laughs> so I've noticed... I haven't found anything that my Eastern King won't eat. It's eaten chicken wings, um, it's eaten tilapia chunks, it's eaten rosy reds, uh, every type of rodent, quail, chicken, whatever. So yeah, no. So you've got this like weird spectrum going on there. So
1: you just anyway. need to quit defrosting uh, pinkies in your pants pocket before you go <laughs> into the sniper.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. <laughs> and then, well, the way I defrost them here at school, I did it actually earlier today. Is I'll just go up to our freezer and I put it in my hand and then, you know, I have my hand closed and then I walk down to my office and a couple of the professors know, like if Zach's walking around with a fist, he's not angry. He's just got dead mice in there. So <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> so, uh, but I digress on that moment. Um, so yeah, are we ready to get rocking and rolling here? Sure. You think? Yep.
1: I think we're ready. Yep.
0: All right, cool. So our guest tonight is Jennifer Joseph, and I believe that we are the first people to have you on a podcast. Is that correct?
3: That would be correct. Which
0: yes, you so, know,
3: I'm a dinosaur, so it took a little bit of. I I, <laughs> I figured this all out myself. I'm quite happy about it. So,
0: mm-hmm. well, I've I've known Jennifer for for a little while now. Um, many people know Jennifer for her work with various species of Pichophis, primarily bull snakes, but she also keeps many of the rarer forms of pitch office, uh, which we will talk about as you know, here in a minute. Uh, gophers, pine snakes, uh, Janai, all those guys are have been part of her collection at one time. Uh, I reached out to Jennifer because at the university, we were trying to acquire a collection of bull snakes for an experiment where we were going to be looking at Uh, stress hormones and we needed an animal that would go to the bathroom a lot. That wasn't a false water Cobra and was a big colubrid that would give us nice big samples. You know what I'm saying? And bull snakes came to mind immediately. And when I reached out to Jennifer, she was gracious enough to donate several animals to the university. And then through that I communicated with her and realized that we have very similar interests. uh, And she also has interests that are similar to Matt's in that she keeps, in addition to the pitch office, several, what we would claim to be oddball colubrid species as well. So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight uh, with Jennifer. But we kind of have our set questions now. We're we're starting to get into a groove here. Uh, So our first question for you tonight, Jennifer, is how did you get your start in reptiles? What started this obsession?
3: Uh, Always liked invertebrates always liked uh, reptiles if it swam or crawled or hopped or croaked or whatnot i liked it and this was a source of great consternation of my mother who had had three boys before me and was yay a girl and i was much worse than all of them about bringing things in and you know you can't keep that toad Well, the toad would go in the music box or and this is when i was five or six but um First, herps I kept were were, were frogs. Just you know, uh, uh, Sierra tree frogs, Sierra Nevada tree frogs, or Pacific tree frogs, or whatever their current common name is. Uh, I always called them Pacific, but I think they've been renamed again. And you know, every ditch, you know, you can go climb around in the ditch and and with a bucket and catch uh, catch tadpoles and and. And frogs, and I'm fortunately not prone to poison oak, so I brought everything home. Uh, first snake was I was six years old, and I snuck a garter snake in the house. And my father didn't like snakes. My mother was terrified of them. It promptly got loose. Uh, it was found astonishingly, and looking back on it, I can't I can't believe that it was it was located in the house. Uh, and it, you know they they set it up an aquarium outside, under the deck, out of the sun. <clears throat> and you have to pardon my voice. it's been it's been going in and out. Uh, and you know, so then I was getting up at six in the morning and sneaking out in bare feet to visit my snake. And at which point they said, fine, bring it in, and we went to the pet store and got a, a aquarium that, you know, my father, uh, being an engineer, made escape proof which it promptly got out of and after three or four iterations uh it 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 stayed for you know we kept it for i kept it for about two weeks and then uh didn't know anything about it no internet had one book from the library it was a it didn't want to eat so we let it go and but you know catching newts which you know my mother was always very worried about venomous snakes and toads, you know, and, and, and yet I'm catching, um, rough skinned newts, you know, one of the most poisonous animals on the planet and sticking them in my pocket and carrying them around. And, you know, if you, if you handle them and lick your fingers, your face will go numb. It's kind of fun. Um, but, uh, that, that was the start. Uh, the first snake I bought was a corn snake. That was just wild-caught adult corn, had it for about five years in a, uh, this was 1978, 79, big 80-gallon glass aquarium that probably weighed 300 pounds. And I honestly don't recall exactly what happened to him. Um, I don't remember if he escaped or if it was one of those... Well, we didn't take care of Jen's pet while she was away, so it ran away, kind of yeah. things. Um, after that, I really wanted a boa. You know, I, you know, it's, it's. There were, you know, there were corn snakes and rat snakes. We don't, of course, we don't have rats and corns in California. Gopher snakes, and then you're ten or eleven years old, or actually, at the time, about twelve. Uh, what do you know about? You know about, well, there's boa constrictors, so I wanted a boa constrictor. And of course, pet stores were full of wild-caught boas. So finally, after nagging, 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 uh, my dad said, fine, we'll go to the pet store. Went in, looked at the boa constrictors, picked a couple of them up, and my dad decided they looked too thick and too scary to him. So I came home with a neonate, wild-caught, reticulated python <laughs> oh. at 13. <laughs> um, and, yeah, he. I had him for quite a while. Uh, he finally, finally got given to uh, a friend's father who was a biology teacher when he was about 13, 14 feet long. And, um, yeah, so yeah that that was that was my intro to the whole thing uh, at that point I was when I turned sixteen I started working for an exotic store in Vacaville California uh, lots of snakes I ended up doing a lot of rehab work you know everything would come in everything was I'd say uh, what this was. 87, 88, so probably 98% of what came in was wild-caught, um, especially to pet stores because it was just, you know, profit margins, so they wanted them cheap. And, uh, you know, even corn snakes, even, you know, the have bred corn snakes were kind of pricey. So everything came in wild-caught, so it was, well, this looks like it's going to die. Here, give it to Jen. She can take it home <laughs> and see if she can, you know, resurrect it. If it if it recovered, uh, I would get a, a, basically it was a consignment. I would get a portion when it got sold. Uh, some of them ended up being pets. That's how I got my first king snakes, uh, which I did. Those were the first snakes I bred um, in a plastic shoebox uh, on vermiculite on top of the uh, refrigerator because it was nice and warm back there uh, for the egg, for incubating the eggs. And then I also uh, had a couple of uh got given, <clears throat> given a couple of uh, Southern Pines, <clears throat> and I bred those. Um, and then college happened. Uh, I ended up just keeping a few things just as pets. And then I got involved with, you know, kids, and uh, we showed dogs for about 25 years. Um, and then about 12 years ago, I decided, yeah, I think I'll, you know, get back into snakes. And, you know, Jay, my husband said, well, how many do you want? I said, I promise I won't have more than a dozen. That's it total. Well, uh, two rooms and an incubation room so far in the house are completely committed to them at this point. So that's where we're at. And that's only taken me 12 years to completely break his spirit and and have us probably have a few more than I, I really need, but that's okay. So the problem is you know it's with anything i'm sure it happens with you guys you get something it's interesting i can make a new project out of that or oh that's an unexpected result of that breeding i guess i have to keep it um and that and the fact that i like oddballs has kind of kept things has kept things growing for a while so excellent Uh,
1: yeah so, so why specifically Colubrids, then, in terms of just the general collection?
3: Um, I, I just like them a lot better. Uh, they're more, in my opinion, a more interesting range of adaptations, a more interesting range of behaviors. Uh, they're all, you know, I... I I've, even though I've kept, const- you know, the boids and pythons, they're not, Yeah, they're just not my thing. Um, eh, you know, I, I, I certainly don't want to step on anyone's feelings, but they're not the brightest. Um, some of the aren't either, but eh, some of them, you know, they're, they're definitely a different snake every time you open the enclosure and uh you know that's part of the you know pitchophis there um you know with between between seasonal variation uh hormones i mean they're they're a different snake to take care of depending on the time of year uh sometimes they're a little jekyll and hyde about it but uh know yeah, that keeps it interesting and i just really like them so there we go
1: well, you did quite the negotiation with your father from going from a boa constrictor to a 13-foot retic. So. Well, it was
3: at the time I got him, he was probably all of about 18 inches long and very, you know, very. And my dad, my dad looked at the boas and they were thick. You know, they were they were a heavy bodied snake that scared him. The little tiny retic was just a little tiny shoelace. So that was no big deal. Um I probably could have clued him in at the time. I didn't,
1: uh,
3: <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, and being, having, being, being, it was a wild cut retake, I definitely learned, uh, you know, a lot about, oh, approaching them in a cage, which, um, you know, has paid off over the years. But you know, I, in the worst bite I ever got, I got two. I've gotten two really bad bites from from you know, herps. One was a was a wild caught adult iguana. Uh, nothing that I'd like to go back and deal with again. And the other was a big anaconda. And that one ended up. I ended up with some tendon and nerve damage from that one. And after that, I just decided I also didn't want to have to worry about that with, with the large constrictors either. So, um, it, it did occur to me that that was kind of ironic when I had a bull snake attached to my cheekbone one time for about 20 <laughs> minutes, cause she had wrapped around the hand I was using to hold her from, from twisting. And you know, I, no one was home. And so I just sat and waited for her to let go. And she decided she wasn't going to, and you know uh by the time she finally did I, I looked like I'd been in a in a bit of a of a fight um she immediately you know took the rat that I had been thawing for, her, so no problem but um yeah, at least at least she was small enough to one person by themselves could manage her though know, she was being a little um, overly enthusiastic so <sighs>
0: excellent so. What does your uh, we we kind of did the introduction broadly, but but would you mind explaining to our listeners what your collection looks like now? So which species you have and why they're there, and just kind of an overview, so that when we get into the conversation, people understand uh, your background and your collection currently.
3: Yeah, yeah, Um, probably about sixty five percent of my collection are bull snakes. Uh, of that, it's about 50-50 on morphs and non-locality and on locality um, for say I from various places from Canada all the way down to Texas. Uh, the rest of the of the pits are fairly evenly divided between uh, the pine snakes, Uh, Melina Lucas and uh, Ruth and I. um, I've got some uh, Cape Gophers. Uh, I do have some Sonoran Gophers, locality ones. Uh, I've got Janai, Depii, and uh, the Lineaticolis. And then the rest of the collection is uh, Transpacos rats, some black rats, some greenish rats, uh, intergrades, um, a few odds and ends. Uh, I've got eastern and western fox snakes. Um, and then I've got the oddballs. I've got the Scaphiophus, uh, the African, and uh, all three species that are in uh, collections of Madagascar ho- uh, hognose. And um, uh, Baruna and Paraphomophus uh, rusticus there. So, uh, so a few rear fang. Oh, I have Baron's racers as well. Forgot about those earlier. So, um, so yeah. So, so but the bulk of it, the bulk of it, are the pits uh, for sure. And you know they're uh, such a highly variable genus that you know it you you even within you know each subspecies you get a tremendous amount of variation depending if they're coastal if they're valley which state they're in what color the soil was um, but even in in those localities you get a lot of vari- you know variation within them and that's been capitalized on quite a bit. Uh, the, you know, the sand prairie, the the black and yellow, uh, or the tricolor from the Illinois and, and Indiana sand prairies, uh, the reds, which you know are are mostly all descended from a few very very red animals. But that's certainly not the norm. Uh, the in in of what you'll find crawling around in Texas. So, you know, there's a lot been a lot of line breeding and selective breeding that's gone into that. But you could have easily taken, you know, Kingsville, the Kingsville and Clayburgh and County, their locality is known for being red. Uh, most of the snakes there are not red. And you could easily have bred a very, very high yellow or very, huh. very low contrast animal from it. In fact, I've got a wild caught animal from Kingsville that is a very kind of dust-colored, gold dust-colored, low-contrast animal. And, you know, so explaining to people when they go, I want a Kingsville, well, they're not all red. So if you're looking for really red ones, well, you know, I do have those, but I also keep other ones around because I have no desire to have their entire family tree look like a potted palm? When we're fortunate enough, with 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 them as a species, as a subspecies, to be able to get wild-caught animals and diversify the genetics a little bit, and it's not a possibility with a lot of, of rare animals. Um, some imports, you're not going to find that. So while we have the opportunity, why not? keep the gene pool as, as, uh, spread out as, as possible. Um, that's not to say I don't have line breeding projects going on, but I, I like knowing that I've got somewhere to go when they need a refresh, <laughs> especially locale. So.
1: Now I think that's very important, especially as we continue down captive reproduction of a number of these species that have been bred in captivity for multiple generations and, decades for some of these species just because you want to unify and add new genetics to those specific collections. Um, You know, even when you look at AZA collections and things like that, they're not as pure as what a lot of people think they are. Um, Mm -hmm. To be honest with you, AZA, from my perspective and what I've talked to and even have looked for for genetics, um, you know, sometimes you'll get in there an animal that was just donated from someone as a pet and it could be, you know, an integrated, it could be a hybrid. Um, but that animal is now within that zoological collection too. Um, so, you know, even talking about locality in animals, I always find very interesting, not because of the fact that every animal is going to look that specific way, but it presents a lot of, um, background and history, just from, you know, temperature, Things of you know cooling cycles, how those animals are actually feeding and and growing based upon rain cycles, even too, because prey items might become more abundant during certain times of the year. Yeah,
3: I <clears throat> I see a lot of difference in how they respond to changes in weather, in barometric pressure, uh, time of year between. The 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 what what are called the eastern bulls the bulls that are found in in the small pockets in Indiana and Illinois and the bulls from Texas uh, very different animals um, you know not just in appearance which which you can you can pick up a, a a bull snake an adult that is from Texas and know that it's a Texas bull. They've got a a shorter head, they've got a heavier body. They've just got a different different look, most of them. but the the, the Eastern Bulls, which have become really popular uh, starting with the Illinois bulls and now the Indiana locales are becoming more more popular, they are very tuned into changes of weather, especially drops in barometric pressure. Um, I'm assuming that's because, you know, they're next to a great lake and they're also gonna have a shorter summer and a shorter growing season. And you don't wanna be caught with a full stomach when Mm -hmm. weather decides to roll off the the lake and drop the temperature, you know, 60 degrees. it's a decens, you know. It, I I've had, and we don't always get a major drop in temperature when we get barometric drops. Uh, we're right next to the Pacific Ocean, which is a lot of contradictions to it. It, uh, you know, we get, we can be 110 during the day and 50 at night with no barometric change. That's because we're just getting we're getting cool air, cool moist air off the ocean. On the other hand, our air is incredibly dry most of the time. It's they've had better humidity in Arizona than we do here, um, you know. So it it's that's a little bit of a challenge too that we can talk about later. But I've had it when the te- when the barometer has has taken a plunge, and that usually starts happening right around this time of year. Actually, um, I have had whole clutches of of say Lake County bulls from Lake County, Illinois decide, okay, that's it. We're done. We're not eating. Um, hmm. like Lake County, Indiana, pardon me. You know, we're, we're done. We're not eating. It's, it's, the adults are a little more, especially the adults that I've had, uh, here in Northern California for, for either their whole life or most of their life are a little more resilient to it, but the little guys will just shut off. Um, and just I am curious
1: yeah. that, that being said, how many generations in captivity are these animals that you you're noticing this more frequently?
3: I I've noticed it's, it's much more prevalent with animals that are F1, F2 and, and the animals that are probably F3, F4, at least on one side are much less likely to have that, that be an issue. This last two years, I was fortunate enough to be gifted a wild caught, um, Illinois bull. And even the and he's been used to refresh some uh, ones that came from very specific lines that hadn't had a, an outcross for quite, for at least three generations. And it's about 50 50 on the little guys in terms of being, being really sensitive. Uh, the Texas bulls, on the other hand, they just eat. <laughs> and they keep eating, and the only time they don't eat is a female actually laying eggs will probably not eat, and a male looking for females won't eat. Other than that, they're they're pretty amazing. Um, you know, I was listening to the podcast, the last podcast you did, and uh, with Clint, and yeah, he was saying you know that he offers them food sometimes, right? Uh, immediately from taking the eggs. I do that with bulls. Sometimes they haven't even moved out of the position they laid the eggs in. And they'll just reach over and grab it and start swallowing it. And that's the Texas bulls. They're, they don't let an opportunity to eat pass them by. And uh, they'll also eat anything. So birds, rabbits, um, you know, uh, on a few occasions roadkill and well frozen but roadkill nonetheless Mm -hmm. you know the neighbors run over a squirrel well i'm not going to pass that up so uh me and gloves and tongs and in the freezer because i don't want hana but uh yeah no i've i've got a few few bowls that have been very happy to uh, dispose of anything um and it's another nice thing about them most of the time although they're not as consistent of an eating snake in general as they're sometimes portrayed to be when they're marketed to Mm -hmm. the general public. They're, they're, they're not as, um, as simple as that in general. I'm sure you've noticed that with them. They're, I think some of it's hormonal and some of it is they are very tuned into seasonal, uh, changes. So. That's really, go for it, Matt.
1: Oh, Oh no, that's, that's really why I was curious about the generations in terms Mm -hmm. of the breeding successions, just because, you know, even working with new species in the hobby, it's not until you get to probably the fourth or fifth generation of breeding in captivity that you really start to see that natural cycling Mm -hmm. doesn't play as strong of a role. Right. Um, You know, for some species, I don't even cool and they'll breed without (laughs) cooling or anything. And it's just because of the fact that that natural ingrained behavior is lost at that point in time.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would, I would agree with that. So yeah, I don't think it would
1: be called habituation, but you almost start to wonder what is playing a role there.
3: Yeah. Well, we, I, you definitely see um, with most of the pits. You definitely see most of them. You see a, a relaxation of temperament as well around the fourth generation um not all of them i don't think that the line pines will ever be (laughs) lovey-dovey and and want to be picked up and hugged and cuddled uh and the same probably goes for for southern pines um which hate all humans on site and you know will scream at you and And, and, you know, I, I tell people snakes growl and they go, no, they don't. You pick up a Southern pine and go listen to this. Um, oh my God, you know, what's wrong with it? No, it's just what they do. That's, that's, you know, they they roar. That's, that's part of what they do. But with the bull snakes, because that's what I'm selling. If I, what, when I'm selling snakes and I'm selling them to people who have never had uh Anything um, other than maybe a ball python or a corn snake. Uh, most of the time, I if they're if temperament is their main concern, if they're if they don't want anything that's very defensive, which defensive is sort of inbuilt into bull snakes. It's you know it doesn't bother me because I think it should be part of them. But I, I usually steer them towards. Something that's maybe pet for a few morphs uh, that I have. If, if they want something that's you know pink or red or white, then one of the morphs. But I know that the temperaments on those are going to be. A lot of them come out of the egg very chilled. Uh, probably not a great adaptation for the wild, but they're they're a good pet bull snake at that point. Um, You know, the Kankakees, the the Newtons, the Kingsville Reds, not so much. Um, And the Kingsvilles don't seem to care how many generations uh, they've been bred. They, they, (laughs) they're, they're not, they're not, their chill is just not in their nature. And. You know, I'm on. I have to bite my tongue and and cross my fingers and sit on my hands to not type something in fury every time I see someone say, "Oh, it's all bluff with bull snakes." I've had three of them. It's all bluff. They they'll hiss, but they don't bite you. It's like I have a seven foot red bull that, you know, I've had I, I hand raised. Yeah, you know, I've raised since hatching, and uh, you know she still tries to kill me on a regular basis. And there's no bluff. She'll hiss, but the first time she strikes, she wants blood. There, there's, I, and I don't think she feels that she's done her job unless she makes contact. So, the the whole that's not most of the most of them calm down very nicely. They make very easily handle captives. Um, you know, they 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 sometimes by being loud and and throwing on the the act and and bluffing, they do tend to, you know, sometimes scare people, but uh, most of them will calm down with size right around the the, right around three to four feet. A lot of them lose most of their, uh, their defensiveness. I think something in their, in their brain clicks that we're not a cocktail weenie anymore. We're not a single bite for every predator that's, that's running around. And at that point, they're they're a little more, um, you know, they're much more manageable and easily easy to pick up and handle if you're not comfortable with a snake that, uh, you know, is going to have some attitude and and depending on the day and its hormones may just not want to deal with you. So, but yeah, some of the reds are not ever calm, and then of course. Uh, Zach, as you know, the line pines have mm-hmm. a definite opinion about humans.
1: It's, it's not
3: it's, good. It's not good. <laughs> it's, it's never good. Uh, and you know, fortunately for, for being a snake that can get quite large, um, they don't. They don't. Even though they do make contact, yeah, you know, they. I haven't found them to actually want to do any any damage. Yeah. So it's it's more like being being flicked. Yep. And just told that you know I would like you to go away now and and so, um, yeah, I, I it never bothers me with them so.
0: Yeah, with the line pines, that's something I wanted to talk to. So you segued it for me. That's a, a species of of pitchophis that many people are familiar with, but I would say more people don't know exists, uh, and they're just fantastic animals. They, they get big. It's a subtropical, um, high elevation pitch office that lives you know, in Central America. I mean, it doesn't get like much cooler than that. Uh, how did you go about... They're also somewhat rare in the hobby. You see them occasionally, but I would not say that there's many people producing them, and you definitely are one of the few that does produce them. Uh, how did you go about getting your group, and full disclosure, I had a pair that I had purchased for the university and they were not doing well here because like you said, they don't like humans and I have an overabundance of those here at the school. So (laughs) they moved on to a better place, which was your collection. But can you just, I feel like this is a good place to give line pines a little bit of love. So
3: Uh, I picked up my first pair of adults from two different, uh, people they were odds and ends. they hadn't been able to pair them off. They'd lost interest in them. I picked up one. I was fortunate enough to pick up the female, and she was an older female. Um, she gave me two two years of good clutches, but she was she was she was up there. She was from the first, probably from the first group that had been released uh by San Antonio Zoo when they bred them mm-hmm. and so late teens, early 20s, and unbeknownst to us she had um, uh, entamoeba uh, that she had been carrying. Uh, Pits are really good at collecting pathogens, Um, unfortunately, they just are, and they're really good at not telling you that they've picked up something that is slowly uh, doing them harm and damage. And, you know, by the time she became symptomatic and we treated her, uh, she already had damage to liver and lungs and, and probably cardiac. And she lived another two years after that. But, um, and she certainly wasn't a young snake by any means, but I would like to think she could have certainly gone, you know, she looked great on the outside. So, you know, it would have been nice to to still have her. But I have, you know, a number of her, I have a couple of her uh, sons that I'm actually raising up. Uh, thought it was a pair, but we all make mistakes once in a while. And they're not the most congenial little, you know, uh, shoelace to, ha- to try to see what's going on, to, to sex. Um, and they're small. They are very small hatchlings. And they don't have a lot of muscle. They don't have a lot of fat. Um, I'll be perfectly honest. The first year I bred them, uh, popping them, I just didn't want to hurt anything either. And, uh, gotten a little more comfortable with the fact that they're tough little boogers and not nearly that breakable. But so I've got two of her, two of her sons, uh, two of her male offspring I'm raising up. And then I had a pair that I purchased as babies that are now, um, they're now adults and then I've got, I've got the, the pair that, that came from, from you and they're doing fine. So uh, this year I expected to have, I was, I'll be honest, I was hoping to have three clutches and no one ovulated. First year I've had them that no one has ovulated. And I really do think it was our, our change of weather. You know, our, we- yeah. our summers have been becoming increasingly warm and mild and although I haven't been cooling them as a, as a species, I've been relying on just the natural cycles of the seasons, shorter days, cooler weather, and just cutting their food back in the winter time. Uh, and yeah, you know, they were producing you know nice clutches and no problem. This coming winter is the first winter that I'll cool them. Um, I probably will leave them on the warmer side of the room. Um, I will probably not cool them for a solid 12 weeks, but I'll probably give them eight weeks to at maybe 60, uh, Mm -hmm. in the dark. And hopefully that will get everybody back on track because, uh, I basically had three adult females and one very disappointed male this year, so (laughs) Hmm. But, uh, you know, but he'll get cool, too, because if it's affecting their fertility, it's going to affect his fertility. Yep. And so, you know, and that same thing is going to, I'll probably do the same thing with the uh, Paraphimophus as well. Um, I did get an ovulation this year, but unfortunately, uh, nothing was fertile. So... I, I tried, Zach. I really yeah. tried. I promise. You,
0: we're going to talk about those guys <laughs> for sure. You know, here in a bit. I'm, gonna, I'm being the deep guy. That's the brown around If you don't know what paraphimosis is, and uh, that's a, that's on my very short list of absolute once. Uh, I wrote about them in the book that I just finished. And as far as I know, Jennifer is like the only human that might have them in America. Uh, minus one or two that's probably floating out there that nobody knows somebody has. So anyway, but we'll save those for later because we're doing pitch office now. So <laughs> uh, so one question I have is, is your style of keeping for all these animals. Uh, obviously, you have a large collection. Uh, we ask everybody this question. So. Uh, do you do primarily racks? If you do do racks, what's your setup in the rack? Do you have enclosures? If you have enclosures, what's your setup there? A little bit of this, a little bit of that. You know, just kind of go over your basic husbandry. And if somebody were keeping a pitch office, maybe give your kind of two cents on what they might want to do. And
1: Zach, just if you don't mind, to expand yeah. off of that, you mentioned you have two rooms. Yes. Yeah. Do you- yeah. Would you mind talking about both rooms and maybe what's in each room? I'd be, to, I'd be happy. To. I'd All be happy too. I'd be happy
3: to. Um, if if you want to talk about adults, just to get that out of the way, most of my adults are in cages. Uh, the the footprint on the cage is going to be a, a four foot by two foot cage. Uh, I don't worry, they will use it, but I don't worry too much about vertical height. They'll right. use it, but they, they, as often as not, they, given a choice, they'll go down. They'll, they like to get up, uh, This we're talking about the adults, uh, in terms of bull snakes, um, not gophers. They like a platform to get up right. on, whether whether they're basking, whether they're just wanting to get up and hang out somewhere where they can kind of see what's going on. Uh, Other than that, and they'll, they'll, you know, some of the cages have driftwood and things in them, they'll get under that where they can watch what I'm doing, but still feel secure. Uh, The lined pines, specifically, I don't really worry about them climbing on anything. I'm sure they probably do in the wild, uh, but for the most part, they would really rather not be seen and if I walk in a room and they're out, they'll freeze, and they will. They're not a. They're not a. An intelligent species by any means. Um, they will wait until they don't think that you are observing them, and then, kind of um, uh, amazing to watch a seven-foot-long, heavy-bodied colubrid completely silently vanish. Uh, you know, if you turn your back and turn back, they're gone. I mean, a, a bull snake will crash around. Pine snakes same way. Furniture's flying. Feces are flying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the lion pines, they're just gone. So I give them, I give all of them have usually at least two dry hides, a humid hide, because our air is very dry. Uh, we often have single-digit humidity here. And that's before you put uh, the air conditioning on, and so you know, humid hides are absolutely vital. And uh, some species, they're vital regardless. But yeah, you know, the transpacos are one of them. But but even even what people would consider desert species, uh, when I say Arizona has better humidity than we do, I'm I'm not in the least bit um, exaggerating. We have good humidity. Well, not good, but moderate humidity other times of the year, but only in patches. And so if anyone ever wonders how wildfires get going up here and just keep going, that's one of the big problems right there. But uh, so the adults are mostly in cages. I do have a couple of freedom breeder, the big boa sized uh, freedom breeder that are, I think a 40 by 30 foot foot inches (laughs)
1: Yeah, that That's would be nice. Job.
3: Yeah, then I wouldn't have to clean. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, just throw some bugs in there and call it good. Now, uh, thirty by forty inches, I think, is the footprint in those, and those work well for adults as well. Hatchlings and juveniles, I usually keep in racks, and to be honest, racks are great, especially for a lot of the the, the pits. They're diurnal, and 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 active and very alert and they stress very easily which can cause to a lot of issues with eating um, you know first thing someone contacts me they have a bull snake they have a pine snake they have a gopher snake they want to know why it's not eating please send me a picture of your enclosure and most of the time it's going to be a glass aquarium um all four sides are clear and they've got, you know, paper towels or Aspen and, and two hides in a water bowl. And it's like, yeah, that's not gonna work. These guys are absolutely living with the realization they're going to be eaten or, or the instinct that they're going to be eaten at any given time. And if I have, if I, if I have them and they don't eat, I usually move them to a darker rack in a quieter corner. Um, worst case scenario, I'll put, piece of newspaper over the top of their hides in the tub in the rack so they never feel like there's anything there's any seal there's any open sky above them at all and if stress is a factor in causing them to to not eat or not do well that usually corrects the situation pretty quickly so um some of them don't care but some of them are are And you can tell right out of the egg, you can tell which ones are going to be a pain in the neck and and need a little, 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 little more security. So right about when they get to three to four feet, I think I mentioned they, a lot of them calm down. And the first few times I had that happen because I honestly hadn't remembered my original pines doing that, but that's probably because they were Southern pines and never calmed down was that, I, you know, you wonder, is a snake ill? What happened? Is there something wrong mm-hmm. with you? You've gone from being absolutely a challenge to pick up without getting struck at, to handle without you hissing the entire time, without you being stressed, to, oh, okay, you know, fine, pick me up, take me around, give me some food, you know, we're cool. And it seems, really does seem with them to be a function of size. And, that, uh, that the, they get to at some point, and it makes sense because they are, uh, crepuscular and diurnal hunters for the most part across most of their range. When you're small enough, everything, especially birds, but everything's going to eat you. Um, but you have to be out. If that's the time of day, your food's out. That's when you're going to be out. You know, when you, whether you're moving, you know, even the bulls in particular, a, a lot of them are burrow hunters, um, but nonetheless, they still have to get from A to B, and they get to a certain size, and they're no longer an easy meal for a hawk. They're no longer an easy meal for for everything that comes around. And I think that that's got to be part of it, because it's. I'm not the only one who's made that uh, observation, and I, I've you know seen people that you know. I, I, Giving advice, going well. Just wait till they're four feet long. Mine calmed down. It's it's a fairly consistent phenomenon with, I'd say, the northern pines and the sayi. You know, some of them never calm down. You know, Ruth and I never calm down. So, um, speaking of oddballs, which you know, there's there's a there's a snake that that really needs, you know, love in the hobby. Um, but yeah, they're, they're an intimidating animal. They're also an animal that, as Matt was saying, you've got other subspecies have crept into. Uh, they're a very hard one to find, uh, animals that, that would be considered pure. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: uh, and, and that you can actually track back and guarantee that everybody says that their line is pure um and everyone says everyone else's line is not pure and it probably ultimately at the end of the day isn't doing them any good that everybody is at each other's throats over over that but that being said there are a few lines that are you know much better documented than others so uh but they're not a friendly snake and temperament wise they're closer to the line pines you know, except the line Pines, as adults, I can work in their cage. They never strike at me. They go into their hide. They prefer to sit there and go, you're not here. I, I deny your existence. The the Ruth and I will happily, you know, try to take your face off if you, <laughs> if you were to try to climb in there and take a look. But, um, yeah, so...
0: So with your okay. two rooms, back to that.
3: Oh, back to that. What, yeah, no, the adults are in one room. My my battery? breeders and my, my grown adults are in one room. And then I have grow outs and sub adults in the other. And that's because like the one room can be just turned off. Once I get everything cleaned up or no one has, no one's eaten for two weeks, I can just turn that room off. And, um, you know, that's, that's, uh, sorry, uh, we've, got the, we've got the air conditioning in there that's, uh, you know, we had to, you know, commercial air conditioners don't go below 60. So we had to get one that is designed for like a walk-in freezer. And that's what we use in there. We, you know, turn it on. It makes quite a sound when it clicks on. Uh, it's like, okay. Um, and my adults, pretty much the snakes that are in there Uh, They don't leave that room. I take them outside occasionally for pictures, but beyond that, that's uh, kind of a biosecurity thing, you know, they're Because because unfortunately uh, pits, like I said, do seem to be very good at picking up stuff Uh, I I quarantine things now for You know almost six months they get a couple of different uh, PCR tests done for various uh, hard-to-detect and hard-to-spot uh, bugs that, that could be problems, and they pass all that, uh, new animals, then they'll move into usually the room that I have the younger animals in, and then after I've got them well-established, if they're ready to breed, I'll move them into the room for the breeding adults. So. And I also keep the rooms, you know, like I don't usually cool the room that the subadults are in uh, in the wintertime. The reason being, mostly, even though it would be a nice break, is bull snakes and pines will start ovulating at age two if you cool them. And I really don't like to breed them until they're about four. Uh, they're also really good, especially some localities and the pine snakes are getting egg bound on slugs because they'll oh. produce incredibly large slugs. Uh, you know, like I, the, you know, the, the Ruth and I, as a adult is going to be a five foot long snake. They're not a super long snake. They are heavy bodied, but an average clutch for them might be four eggs that are, they look like a ballpark Frank, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. eight, eight to 10 inch, long eggs have been, are not uncommonly produced. And they're very rough, not quite as, as rough as an indigo, but you know, they've got a sandpaper quality to them. And even the slugs they produce are huge. And I just don't want them getting egg bound if it can be avoided. And it'll slow their growth down if they're putting all that energy um, into, into egg production. So, it's one of the reasons that once they do start ovulating, pretty much you almost can't stop some of them. And, you know, the bulls are probably the worst uh, for that of the whole genus. They, you know, I've tried not feeding as much. I've tried limiting the amount of light they get during the day so they're not thinking it's summertime. I've tried all of it. And, you know, not cooling them and i turn around and you know she's laying a clutch of 20 slugs and so once once they start though it's really hard um it's hard to give them a year off i mean then that's a problem and it limits their their you know it'll it'll limit their lifespan and their breeding span uh, lifespan if you can't get them to slow down and some of them i can get them to to not lay slugs Infertile clutches on their year off. Some of them, I can't. And if I don't feed them, they just look skinnier after they're done laying eggs. So um, they're not hard to breed, is what I'm. <laughs> it's probably <laughs> the main takeaway from that. Uh, but it's you know they're not they're they're so they're definitely can be their worst own worst enemy in terms of of their health with that issue. And I'm sure part of it is because live fast die young make lots mm-hmm. of babies you know
0: yeah um, so. so so with the pits you mentioned they're not hard to breed can you go over your the way you do it the cycle the whole thing and we we always you know have yeah. to say this is the way jennifer does this there's lots of ways to skin this cat but you've been a little successful so it'd be really, and that's being facetious, you've been really successful. So you know, there's a lot sure. of people out there that love this group of snakes that might just be getting into this for the first time. And can you just kind of go over your way of doing this?
3: Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, the I do cool most of my adults. Um, starting late September, I start cutting their food back a bit. I pretty much cut them off uh, second, third week of September. I stop feeding. Um, I give them a couple of weeks to make sure they're emptied out, and at that point, I'll turn off supplemental heat. It's usually still warm here, so. But we have a tremendous, where I live, we have a tremendous variation of data tonight. We can we can have a fire weather watch and a frost warning at the same time. We can have, you know, 80, 90 degree temps during the day and they can drop to 45 or, or, or even 35 at night, uh, pretty easily. So by turning off the supplemental heat, because the room is fairly well insulated, it won't get cold in there, but it will start, you know, dipping it it naturally. Even in the summertime, it naturally dips down into the mid to low seventies. So it'll start, you know, dipping down and then staying cooler during the day without the supplemental heat on. Especially because the room is north facing. So that the my adults are in is north facing. Uh, after after they've had that for about ten days, I go ahead. I turn off the lights. Uh, hopefully by then it's starting to get cold enough on its own. If it's not, I turn on the the, the big cooler, um, for, for the season. And I set that initially I'll set that probably around 65 and then lower it a few degrees every day or two. And ultimately I try to get them down right around 50. Um, they're going to be at kept around 50 degrees for 12 weeks. Um, at that point. And and one of the reasons was because when we dealt with the Entamoeba, um, which was no fun, and unfortunately, probably probably with the forward flies, uh, that had been spread to a number of other animals. Uh, Once we got that knocked out, and that took a few months of of treating and testing and treating and testing, to get everyone cleared up. One of the things you find if you research that bug in particular, is it doesn't like it above ninety, or below fifty five. So by keeping them cool, that first year after we had the had the issue with the enemy, but it wasn't the first year we cooled them, it reduced the likelihood of the protozoa being able to reproduce if there was any left in anyone's digestive tract or any other part of their body, uh, while they were cooling and while their immune system was at an ebb because it was cold and they came out of it great. Uh, they came nice. out, everyone came out in good shape. Everyone passed, you know, testing for, for amoebas when they came out, um, it's been a while. I still test for them, but we haven't seen them for a long time, thankfully. But they they came out of that great, and they were in great shape. So that's just been my go-to temp now. Uh, and the, I wake them up. I turn on the temp. I turn on the lights first, and I turn off the air conditioning. And then it will, or the cooler, it's not really air conditioning. I turn off the, the compressor. It will start, To then gradually warm up. And then once it gets to about 60, I start turning on the supplemental heat and bring them up over the course of the next week or so after that. Um, Don't like to keep them at that sort of in-between temperature for too long because I don't want their immune system struggling. Um, Mm -hmm. But I also don't want to shock them. So, But we do it. We do it. I know I know people that take, do you know, take two weeks to do it. It's mostly by the end of a week at our place, mostly they're back up to at least room temp with, with usually their, their hot spots turned on. So are their basking spots turned on. I give them about two weeks from the time I turn the lights on, they're usually ready for a meal. Most of them will wait until the female shed. They'll usually eat once or twice and then go right into shed. Mm-hmm. S- depends on the body condition they're in. Uh, if they haven't shed by the fifth week or so, I'll go ahead and introduce the male anyway, as long as they're in good condition. Because they'll produce such an overabundance of eggs and very large eggs, and because they do seem somewhat prone to if everything's going right, they're super easy. If things aren't quite right, they can be kind of a nightmare. So if they're in the least bit if they're in the least bit thin, I don't breed them. If if I have a feeling that something's a little hinky with somebody, I don't breed them. I then I try very hard to get them to not ovulate if I can. Like as we were discussing, but you know I I've had a couple I had a couple clutches this year you know, six foot plus females, but 24, 26 eggs. And they're all the size of hen eggs. And that's a lot. Yes, <laughs> It's it's a lot. And if they're thin, it, it doesn't seem, you would think, okay, you're a little thinner. You won't make as many eggs. They'll still go ahead and try to make just a huge clutch. And, um, you know, egg binding is no fun. And so uh, it's something I try really hard to avoid. The other thing is if these guys, these guys will breed themselves to death given the opportunity. And that's the other reason we don't, we try never to breed them more than two years in a row. But and you know, it's like I said, it's it's a challenge to then convince them that, hey, you're taking a year off, it's vacation. Go put your feet up, you know, get, get a nice book, relax, have a glass of wine. But they uh, you know, we we do we do make an effort because they, they absolutely have to be well, I mean, it's the same with any species, but but these guys definitely if they're not at a good weight, you're potentially asking for a real problem with with egg delivery. So so when when you put
0: males together, we mm-hmm. talked about this with with Clint and the rat snakes. Do you see more breeding activity with when the females have shed after they've come out of brumation or do they just get on with it because it's it's springtime and it's time to go?
3: It depends on the male. I have a couple of males that would breed a garden hose given <laughs> the opportunity and um if the female's not interested in breeding, they'll still try and, and I separate them because uh, they're pretty violent breeders. If you're talking about the pines and the bulls, um, not uncommon for females to get royally chewed you know, top of their head, back of their neck, uh, sometimes halfway down their, their, to their, towards their back. Um, and the males will not give them a break. Uh, you know that there's no, Hey, we bred, let's, let's, let's separate to our respective corners for a few hours. Um, no, there. So it depends. It depends on the male. I I do have some females that I absolutely know have ovulated during brumation hmm. uh, at, at, fi- at 50 degrees. They went ahead and, and brumated because I brought them out, took one look at them, put the male in there and they shed and laid eggs, probably five to six weeks after the end of, of brumation. Doesn't happen very often, but probably maybe one every two or three years will do that. So in that case, yeah, I mean, you know, if I put them together, there's no interest whatsoever, uh, or he's interested and she just sits there like a lump and has won't even run from him, just basically. Decides I'm going to play dead, maybe he'll leave me alone, then I'll take him back out. Um, cannibalism is pretty rare with adult uh, with adult pits, so I don't really worry about that too much. So I'll leave the male in for usually three days, then I'll separate mm-hmm. them to feed them. Most of the males won't eat during breeding season, though. So some of the older males will, but... Um, most of the younger males especially won't eat. They'll eat two or three times, and actually I feed the males pretty heavily after brumation because they, once they decide that, you know, they're, they're basically single-minded as a, as a chainsaw at that point. They've got absolutely no interest in, in food or anything else. Um, even the line pines, that are so the males are they're so shy. That's the only time I see the males out all the time, and they won't you know go and hide when I come in the room. Because as soon as they decide there's a girl, they completely you know get get blinded. They don't care that I could be in the room. Uh, you know there could be an ocelot in the room. I'm pretty sure they wouldn't care. <laughs> as far as they're concerned, if, they're, if they smelled the girl, that's it. So, uh, but yeah, usually I leave them together for three days, take them, separate them, feed, give the female a couple days to digest, I'll put them back together again until she starts actively refusing him or he has no interest in her or she she goes back into shed. Uh, Eggs, I mean, you know, the big thing, they're big snakes, they're big heavy-bodied snakes, they have large clutches. I make sure they, you know, I, I I hate to leave a big bowl of water in with them. I'll, I'll switch to a smaller bowl of water, try to discourage them from laying eggs in it. <laughs> um, I usually give them, they have their human height anyway, but I usually give them whatever box I'm hoping they'll lay in. Hoping uh, that they'll lay in uh, as soon as they're done breeding, as soon as she starts to go into her, her pre-lay shed. Uh, mainly I want her comfortable. I want her relaxed. I want her hopefully not getting dehydrated. I want her to have a good, easy shed. And if she'll keep eating, I keep feeding. Um, I know a lot of people don't, but I haven't had any problem with that. And it helps prevent them looking like they're completely deflated and awful after they, after they lay eggs.
0: Do Uh, they, um. Double clutch, like about fifty
3: about fifty percent of them will, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't actively try to double clutch them, but it's pretty obvious usually if they're going to or not. Yes. So, and if they show signs that they're probably going to, I'll put the mail right back in because they have an easier time. One, they're already having the metabolic uh, cost of making eggs, whether they're fertile or not. Um, but two, they seem to have an easier time laying fertile eggs than they do laying slugs. So if, if I think that they're ovulating again, I'll put the male back in with them. And they're usually pretty obvious about it. So not, not a sneaky species in any way, shape, or, or genus in any way, shape, or form.
1: Jennifer, just curious, during your bromation period, do you keep moist hides in with the adults? I don't keep females? I don't
3: keep moist hides in with them. I do keep a water bowl in with them. Okay. Um, the reason I don't keep moist hides in is I've had I tried that one year and I had a few that kind of tried to camp out, and okay. maybe they needed the humidity, but on the other hand. Uh, They didn't come out of brumation in the kind of shape I was hoping they would. They didn't have anything obvious in terms of an upper respiratory infection, but they definitely... I got the impression that with probably evaporative effect in there, uh, they had gotten a little too chilled. So um, we've talked about putting a humidifier in the room in the winter, but I haven't had... I haven't seen any real evidence that they're having an issue with dehydration during the winter time without humid hides. They absolutely will come out and drink everything, and they hiss at me when I go in there to check on them. It's a very slow, quiet, slow motion hiss, but <laughs> it's a hiss. Um, and you know, I, I've definitely seen them drinking in the middle of of the whole thing, so. Uh, they seem, they seem pretty good at managing themselves.
1: So, so yeah, when the other, other oh, go for a minute. oh, go ahead, Zach. No, you're good. Um, so this was something that I've really kind of sparked an interest in over the past couple of years, especially hearing from a number of keepers, um, even with heavier bodied rat snakes is kind of the egg bound issue. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's, I don't know, um, from being an anatomist, I found it very interesting in terms of how fat accumulates on the inside mm-hmm. of reptilia. And over the past two to three years, I've actually been decreasing the amount and size of prey items that I offer my animals. Mm-hmm. I've, I've seen issues, you know, yeah. even with animals trying to formulate a second clutch for the season, mm-hmm. and having egg binding issues just off of an in, infertile, um, ova. um, in terms of your feeding and, and prey of what you actually offer your animals, could you go into a little bit about that? And if you supplement or provide vitamins or calcium with the animal?
3: Sure. Uh, I feed Most of the adult bulls and pines I feed on medium-sized rats. A couple of reasons. One
1: they're certainly an
3: easy meal for them to get down. Uh, two, they're not as fatty as the as the large rats are. Um, you know, and, and if you've ever, for whatever reason, skinned or taken apart the large rats, they have just, they're, they have a tremendous amount of fat. So I'd rather feed, if I have a, with my really big, like the really big Texas bulls, some of which can be, you know, easily over seven feet. Um, and as big around as a water bottle, uh, I'll, I'd rather feed them two medium rats than, you know, one large rat. Um, I have a couple of them that would probably happily eat two large rats, but you know, they're they're kind of grounded on that. I do also feed, uh, day old chickens. Um, I like them because they're not super fatty. Uh, I don't like cleaning up after, but I do... You know, the snakes do like them quite a bit, and I do feed quail. Uh, same thing, though, you know, younger quail, because the the really big quail tend to be just really fatty. Um, and they're also, you know, even for a large bull snake, it's a big stretch to get over the hips and everything on a large quail. Uh, I feed every, you know, I, I feed my males every 10 days for the most part during when I'm trying to ramp them up for breeding season or put weight on them after. Um, I feed the females about about once a week. Uh, I do know people that feed every four to five days. I haven't seen that that's necessary. When I say I want them in good body condition, I don't want them fat. But I do want them carrying enough reserves that they're going to still have something to draw from after they've made all those eggs and after and and then are pushing them all out uh so that hopefully they've got the energy to do it all in one sitting i don't i used to try to get them heavy before i put them down for brumation i don't anymore i try to make sure that they're in good weight and in a healthy body condition but not you know they don't They're not gonna be burning any calories while they're cooled. That's kind of the part of the whole point of it. So as long as they're in a healthy condition, they have good muscle tone, I think that's much more important than actual weight. Uh, People always ask, well, what does your bull snake weigh? I don't care what my bull snake weighs. I care what it looks like. I care when I pick it up, does it feel muscular? Is it active? Is it, you know, does it feel strong? If it feels like a big squishy thing, that's no good. Um, if I pick it up and it feels light to me, or I can feel its spine too much, you know, and then we've, or, you know, you can feel the ribs, um, you know, below the vent, you can, not the ribs, but the side of the vertebrae below the vent, you have a problem. So, you know, I want them, I want them at a happy medium going into brumation coming out. I know the females, they're not, they're not going to get fat coming out of brumation there because everything that they take in is going to go into egg production. Um, so I'll go ahead and, and you know, they they get to eat once a week. If they're desperately hungry still, I'll give them a second small meal at the same time. Bull snakes are, you know, adapted and selected to eat multiple prey items. It's kind of the classic thing. They go down, you know, go for burrows and prairie dog burrows and things and slam all the the prey items up against the side of the burrow and crush them. And they'll if I, if I give a bull snake two frozen thawed rats, it'll slam one up against the roof of its enclosure or the side of its enclosure with a body coil and pin it there while swallowing the first one. And I'm pretty sure if I gave them four or five small things, they would do it with all four and five and not be happy until they had them all smashed. So I don't worry about giving them multiple items. That never seems to be an issue. Um, I do supplement the females once or twice with calcium prior to laying. Uh, I especially do that if it's a second clutch for that season and I don't want to overdo it. You know, I don't want them becoming dependent on an outside source of calcium. I don't want that screwing up anything like that. I don't know if any research has been done Mm -hmm. in that regard. It's an issue in, you know, I, I, We showed them bred dogs for 25 years. And you don't supplement with calcium with pregnant bitches ever. And the reason for that is that their body, the mechanism, the hormonal mechanism that tells their body to pull calcium out of their bones and out of their muscles when they need it for milk production uh, will become quiescent if they have too much available calcium in their diet. And it can lead to issues with milk fever. I have no idea if reptiles have anything <laughs> remotely like that, but they definitely need calcium for good muscle contraction to move eggs out and to lay eggs. And you know, so I'm I'm hesitant to overdo it. Um, I I'm more likely to supplement them if I think they really need it badly after they're done laying for the season. They'll get sup they'll get a supplement with every other meal of calcium until they go down for permission but prelay uh, you know I may dip the, the rat's nose in calcium powder you know get it damp and dip it in calcium powder or bird or roll it in calcium powder once maybe twice it just depends so
2: so your
0: um, your feeding rate right for the Neonates and the juveniles that you're growing up How does that differ from What you're doing with adults
3: um, You know it really doesn't Because I'm not I'm not rushing them To breed At, at age two or three I really want the, the, whole, the, the, the saying with bull snakes And pine snakes is Three years old and six feet Is when they're ready to breed But a lot of them aren't mature at that age A lot of them they may be six feet long, but they're still really slender. They're not fully mature. Uh, So a lot of them, I don't breed till age four. I haven't seen, based on family history, I haven't seen that if it takes them until age four to get to to full size or age two to get to full size, I haven't seen that, you know, anyone's Uh, been, been stunted. Um, I, you know, it's the same thing as, as when we we're talking about, you know, that when I said I don't weigh my snakes unless I have to medicate them or something, but if they, if they're growing and, you know, shedding every two to three weeks, which is what baby, you know, pits will do for the most part. Um, if they're got good muscle tone, if their body condition doesn't look overly thin, then I figure they're getting enough enough calories. Uh I I used to feed every five days. I I now feed every seven. Hmm. So I don't f- with with those. I mean it depends on the species. You know, the the little um uh, hatchling, I mean, she eats every three to four days. Um well she's a yearling now, but she eats every three to four days. And uh you know, I think, and my barons eat more frequently as well, you know, and, and I know falsies do and, you know, but, uh, the bulls don't actually seem to, I don't, it doesn't, I, I, I just haven't seen that it's necessary to have food in front of them all that often. Um, you know, so once a week, if I if I want to put weight on them, then I'll I'll short. If I have one that needs it, I'll shorten it to every five days. I just move up in prey item size, as as they grow and they grow rapidly and they grow incredibly rapidly even on that schedule. So, um, if
0: they're if they're growing, that's probably the best, yeah, one of the better schedules than yeah. pounding them full of protein and fat so that they can yeah. they can grow, but also get fat
3: <laughs> well yeah, we
0: don't want them yeah doing that at all you
3: you could most bull snakes pines are a little you can easily overfeed pines most bull snakes you could you can you can power feed i mean they'll they'll they're amenable to it is what i'm saying and i certainly know people that have gotten them up to five feet in one year um I just don't find that necessary. I, I'm not going to be breeding them for several more years after that. So,
0: so with, with your feeding schedule, if there was like an average size for a yearling a year after it's hatched, what, what mm-hmm. would the length of that animal?
3: About be? three and a half to four feet.
0: Okay, cool.
3: So, you know, there's a huge variation in the size of hatchlings. Um, with say, I, uh, in particular, some of them are, are very small, um, not much bigger than uh, a black rat hatchling, you know, and then, uh, you know, some of them are pushing up there into the, the same sort of size you would see with the Southern pines and the, you know, the Ruth and you know, that can easily be, um, you know, 16, 18 inches, 20 inches long and ready to eat pocket gophers right out mm-hmm. of the. But most of them are, are not as large as the pine snake hatchlings. Most of the, you know, catenifer are just not as large as the as the pines are. So this is the first year, you know, this year it's been interesting. This year it was first year we produced uh, depii. depi. Mm-hmm. And um when i had been sent babies when they were little they were tiny they were corn snake size hatchlings and i was really pleased with these guys they were you know, on the smaller end of the spectrum for what i would consider it for a say i hatchling and i i sent i you know I, I talking to people who've you know looked at them and said oh they're small like i've had i've had DEPI that were much larger than that i'm like okay cool but Where where were they when I was trying to get them? Because people were sending (laughs) me these little things, and I'm going, oh, what do I feed you? Uh, So, you know, but they've been interesting, too, because there's another subspecies in the genus that, um, like the lined pines, were much more widely available at one point in time, Mm -hmm. but now haven't been imported for a long time. And... I, I'm sure inbreeding depression is definitely uh, nipping at their heels currently. So, you know, and that's an issue, and it's an issue with, you know, with, uh, you know, anything where the gene pool's is limited. Um, and I think that, you know, the lined pines are a good example. They haven't had an influx for a long time. Uh, mm-hmm. I think they're still in relatively good shape. I think it is... Paramount that only The best and the fittest of the hatchlings are probably bred. However, Uh, they're not a species that I When I've had them hatch most of them have been have thankfully been quite vigorous They're not a species. I think that we do ourselves any favors trying to keep them all alive in Um, Mm -hmm. And that goes for most for most animals to be honest and but I think that when you have such a limited gene pool, especially with the, you know, things like the Depi, the Ruth and I, um, the lineaticalists, they, we don't do ourselves any favors by, by going above and beyond because you never know if that animal's going to be bred. You never know what's going to happen with it. Um, you know, it's it, that, that's, that's, I don't know. <laughs> I got off on a tangent there pretty badly, (laughs) but, but it's true. I mean, you know, I was just, I'm just really, you know, with the, the line pines, fortunately, most of them that I've hatched, I haven't seen very much in the way of kinks. I haven't seen much in the way of defects. Uh, I have seen a fragility though, with, as they age, especially with the males. Uh, Nobody, there's twice as many males in a clutch as females. And everyone who's ever bred them will tell you that. And they have huge clutches of tiny, tiny little hatchlings. Um, you know, I think I think some of the zoo clutches were like forty-five, fifty eggs, and oh, they're almost always yeah. That's dropped off, and that's probably because they're now on their on their F four and F five generation. But they they're tiny. I mean, they're you know, compared to most of the other uh, members of the genus, they're very small hatchlings and, you know, very lightly built. Two thirds of them are almost always males and nobody wants males when you're selling baby male line pines. Everyone wants females. I get four or five contacts a year, minimum, probably more people that have lost their male, can't find an adult male you know and i'm not sure if it's a natural just just that you know it's one of the reasons they have so many offspring and so many extra males is because they're just not maybe not as quite as robust
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, is the only thing i can figure I, the ones i have here they don't grow as quickly as the females that i will say Um, so far, so good. They've been healthy so far, but you know, I know a number of people that lost their males right around age two or three and you know, that, yeah. And it may, or it may also be that, that something deleterious came in with the very limited number of Mm -hmm. adults that are, you know, the foundation for them in the U S and, um, so that's a real possibility. And now, uh, as far as I know, you can't get them from Europe right now either, because they're, you know, you know, the, the, with the crackdown on on species that were smuggled out of Mexico, um, unless you have, you know, I, I we I, I talked to someone in. I I have exported them to Europe. I talked to somebody in Europe about getting some back that were you know half his line, which is an unrelated line to the U.S. line, and uh, we were not able to get. We were told we wouldn't be able to get permits for them at this at this time because there's you can't prove. No one has the paperwork to prove that they were
2: uh,
3: that they were legally collected. That they you know they're they're they're. You know, their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents were all legal animals from Mexico. So so it's a problem, you know.
1: You know, Jennifer, just talking about that a little bit in terms of um, high male ratios, in terms of your, your hatching success, do you run multiple males with a single female by any chance?
3: No, with the line, this is only, the only time I have the high male ratio has been the line pines. And I've okay. only ever had one breeding male at a time with them. So,
1: no. Well, and the only reason I ask that is um, I've noticed over the years even too where I'll have real high sex ratios. Um, and I, I don't know how well this plays in evolution maybe mm-hmm. for some of these different species. But I've noticed that you'll see um, competition not with having two males in there at the same time, but mm-hmm. the breeding behavior too, as well. And you start to wonder, at least from my perspective, about sperm competition for fertility, even, too, as well. Yeah. And I don't know, it's just something that, you know, you saying some things, I, I just kind of had yeah. to ask the question.
3: Oh, you no, know, I've only ever had the one male, I, I at a time that was old enough and in condition to breed with the line pines. Um, I've occasionally sparred uh, bull snakes briefly, just to try to get
2: mm-hmm.
3: I would never leave them alone. I'm, I'm quite sure they'd do damage to each other. Um, most of the time it it's been pretty congenial, but it definitely seems to encourage someone to get you know to get off the stick and 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 start courting the female more. Uh, I tried it one time with transpacos, and that was a complete mistake, because they immediately just latched right onto each other. Oh. Um, it, it, they, you know, they were pushing on each other. And I kind of thought, okay, I'll let, I'll let you push on each other for a few minutes. And the next thing I knew, they were both had a hold of each other by the back of the neck and were, you know, rolling around. And they have a considerably good they, they have considerably long teeth for their size. And getting them off each other was not a whole lot of fun. So lesson learned, don't put two male transpecos together during breeding season, but they're a little bit uh, weird compared to every other colubrid on the planet. Cause they've got <laughs> what two or three more chromosomes than everything else does. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So who knows about them <laughs> dropped from Mars or somewhere. Uh, this year we had a minor disaster in that I was, my son was, one of my sons was helping me uh, with the speck. I have speckled hogs from Mad- the Madagascar. When well, I'm even going to try to say the scientific name um, starts with a G um, mm-hmm. I can spell it. I can't say it, but they uh, you know, I, I had said, okay, put the shed from that male in with that guy and he didn't hear the shed part of it. So he put the one male in with the other. <laughs>
0: Oh, man.
3: <laughs> and I turned around just in time to see the two of them hood up, and the next thing I knew, one had the other by the back of the neck, and you know and, and it tried to take off dragging the first one, and ended up with about the, you know, by the time we got them separated, the one had a probably um, maybe a half-centimeter gash all the way down to muscle across the top oh. of its hood so they use those uh those rear fangs for more than just injection obviously mm-hmm. um it you know and i i put on my list do not get bit by speckled hog if at all possible uh you know, they, they've that whole that whole that genus is uh definitely they're spunky
0: yeah well we it, can transition over to them real quick yeah. if you want to
3: yeah, well, I mean the thing is with with uh you know, I think we've probably covered pits because mm-hmm. they're they're not and once once they're hatched, most of them meat. I mean, that's yep. the great thing about them. You put food in front of them, most of them mm-hmm. meat. I mean, the most I ever have to do is occasionally offer a boiled or a washed pink, a, a frozen thought pink, and that's it. And that's maybe one out of every every 40, so uh or 50. So I think if people get to the point where they hatch. Oh, that's one mm-hmm. thing I should say, though. Yeah, go for it. They're incubating them is... Like everything to do with anything with snakes. Easy till it's not. I would say that the one thing with them is they're, they are more sensitive to the temperature fluctuations. Um, okay. They do very well at a lower temp. I, I incubate at 76 to 78 degrees. Um my eastern bulls and northern bulls uh, will go a little shorter, probably because, you know, shorter uh, summers. Uh, everyone else, bull snakes, pine snakes, um, the depiae, uh gophers of various sorts. Uh, I'll go anywhere from, from 65 to 82 days at those temps. The larger the egg, the longer they take. And some of the reds lay, you know, huge eggs, and they just take longer to finish cooking. But the only time we've had issues with a lot of, and I should also say, they don't tolerate being overly moist. So mm-hmm. I keep my substrate a little bit on the a little bit drier than I do for for well pretty much everything else. Um, but the only time we've had problems with kinks. Uh, or significant die-off in the egg has been when, oh, Pacific Gas and Electric has cut our power for various reasons, or, you know, there's been uh, a power failure during the summer, and we've had temperature spikes. And they just, and, you know, the, 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 the rat snake eggs sitting right next to them, the trans eggs sitting right next to them are fine. But then I'll end up with losing eggs, or we'll end up with a kink tail, Um, and so speaking with, with other people that, you know, some of which have never took any time off like I did and have been, have been, you know, doing, doing them for, you know, 40 years consecutively, uh, everyone seems to agree cooler's better with the genus when you're incubating. And so that would be my big caveat there. But once they're hatched, let them shed, throw food at them and they're good to go and they're they're pretty nice. easy so yep yeah. all righty oddballs
0: well, we'll head to oddballs yeah. um so there's there's two that i'd like to talk about uh but we're gonna go to the mad hog or sorry i say mad hog Leah oh
3: i say mad hogs too so yeah it sounds the cool
0: various types of madagascar hog snakes i i do want to throw something out there right now because this Drives me a little bit crazy. Um, within the hobby, there's this idea that those snakes are just a giant version of hognose snake that are closely related to our hognose snakes. And just so everybody understands, they're in a completely Ooh. different family now. Yeah. The Lamprophiidae, they are actually more closely related to cobras and mambas than they are to hognose snakes. Uh, hognose snakes are in the family Dipsatidae, and those two families on the snake family tree yeah. are what we call disparate. They're nowhere close to each other. Um, yeah.
3: And but, I, and they act like it too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So, but, but, yeah. but this whole group of African or Madagascar snakes that, that genus it's become, I, I think somewhat it's seeing kind of a Renaissance right now. It seems like yeah. the, the blondes, the speckleds, and the straight giants or Madagascar hogs, whatever you want to call them, it, Just in the past three years, people really want them. Uh, And you've been successful with them. So I I know that you've bred the Giants. Yeah. Have have, have you produced anybody else yet? Not yet. Working on our groups.
3: No, not yet. The blondes I have came in in very poor condition. You know, I, I got them cheap and. Uh, I picked up six of them on the grounds that hey, maybe half will survive, and that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. And two are doing really well, um, and I would say are firmly established. And the smaller female is has finally, you know, stopped <laughs> self repair and is now growing. Uh, because you know, I mean, importation is not easy mm-hmm. on animals. It's not. I mean, especially, well, it's, I should say wild-caught importation is not easy on animals. And even if everything goes perfectly right, you're talking a big change and the stress of capture and transport. And then you're talking about new water, new, mm-hmm. uh, just a whole new, you know, micro uh, you know microbiome that they have to get used to. Um, everything's new. Everything's different. And... You know, they, so they've taken, a. so it'll be at least, I don't think, I don't think they'll be ready this coming season. I think maybe 2023, my right. speckleds are in great shape. Um, I think that they're definitely on an old world South, uh, you know, and Southern hemisphere uh, yep. schedule. <laughs> and so if they breed, I would expect to see them breed this winter. You know, but I've got weight on them. The male is very much would like me to not get near his females. Um, He'll come out and periscope up and even hood up at me sometimes, which when you talk to people and they, oh, they're the really calm one out of the three, you know, species. And I always wonder with a lot of these species if that reputation is based on animals that are subpar,
2: Mm -hmm. that are not fully healthy.
3: Because you know, now that they're healthy, there is very little about them that is calm or chill or mellow <laughs> or anything else. Um, they're the least yeah i don't I don't worry about getting chewed on by them if I decide to pick them up with my hands the way I do with the blondes. The blondes are like racers. they will happily grab you and gnaw on you and and they act very much like racers, but uh, very alert and and you know, but the the speckleds are even so. Um, yeah, he he's hooded up and taken a few swipes at me, just for for getting into his territory. So I'm hopeful maybe this winter uh, he'll feel inspired that I'm trying to make it feel like, you know, Madagascar and in, in mm-hmm. their abode. But we'll see if that's successful.
0: Are, are they set up in cages? Or are they in uh, a big rack setup? Because I've heard the
3: the speckleds and the blondes are in a big rack setup.
0: Yes.
3: Yeah. The the giants I recently moved to um, the Applegate style cages. Oh, cool. And they seem, you know, it's early days yet, but they seem pretty happy in there. And before that, they were in just a regular two uh, two by four, and before that, they were in a large, very large tub, and.
1: It and you're seem- keeping them in communities.
3: Uh, I'm keeping Honestly. them in pairs. Okay. Uh, I've well, the the speckleds are in a trio for the purpose of breeding. I had the females separated and and the, I had them all separated, and then I've introduced them all. And so far, that seems to be working. Um, mm-hmm. no one's everyone's eating. Weights good. no one seems stressed. You know, talking to a few people about the giants, they said, they do better if you keep them together. They'll eat better, they'll do better, they'll breed better. Uh, I had them separate when I was getting them established, in part because I was having to worm them continuously. They had subcutaneous, uh, probably, I'm guessing, you know, tapes, uh, larvae, they had uh, assortment Uh, All three species did. They all had an assortment of of protozoa and and intestinal worms. And I just really didn't want them sharing it back and forth for, Mm -hmm. you know, two years. So it was easier to keep them separated for at least, well, it it, it took almost a year to kind of get everybody cleaned up. Um, You know, my kids got very good at, at holding, you know, angry, you know, Crotchety rear fang snakes while I I carefully extracted, you know larvae from under their skin Um, You know not my favorite thing to do but they also don't need to have that that burden and they had quite a few And I I think that one of the reasons we're seeing a renaissance in them is because they suddenly became rare Mm -hmm. I think they they used to be imported all the time And they were cheap and they, they came in and every, you know, like the place in Las Vegas, exotic pets in Las Vegas always had, uh, giants and always had, usually had blondes and speckleds as well. And, you know, if you went online, you could find them, I mean, you know, aquarium stores had them. Cause I guess they got all other fish from Madagascar. So they just picked up some snakes too. Now all of a sudden they're hard to get and you know, it, uh, you know, I'm happy to have the ones I have. I I had been meaning to pick them up forever. I started, I, I my oldest pair I've had for uh, five years now, you know, wish I'd taken advantage of when they were cheap and plentiful and pick some up, you know, 10, 12 years ago. But, you know, I figured, oh, I have time, you know, they're always around. But it's really sad and, and an indication of why, Imports are not for everybody uh, that there aren't just a ton of them around uh, The mm-hmm. numbers these guys were imported at it's like you know that there should be and for for the decades that they were came in on and off There should be a lot of them even if even if they were just casually accidentally bred uh, but you just don't see them, you know mm-hmm. and you know, I think the fact that import wild caught imports are not easy to establish in some cases, many cases, is a, a big part of the issue and the problem. And, you know, somebody really need, probably at some point needs to write a how to guide. Hmm.
0: Um, <laughs> well, Don't know anybody just, doing that.
3: Uh, <laughs> uh, gee, hi, Zach uh, or Matt. Are you doing one?
0: No, no, no. No, no. Uh, no for the hog book. Uh, yeah. that I'm. That'll be done this time next yeah. year. I was walking. I was talking with um, Bob, Ashley, mm-hmm. and he has requested that I have the other hog noses as a chapter. So, okay, that's part of the reason why I'm getting the pair from you is yes. um I've dabbled with them before, but yeah. I'm going to be doing a great big chapter in that book on Madagascar, all the all three taxa, and you know yeah. all that kind of stuff. So I'm oh, just gathering your... information.
3: Uh, yeah i'm still here okay well the the one thing i will say is when you're saying they're more closely related to mambas and cobras have Mm -hmm. fun with these babies yeah you might want you might want to use hooks
0: i got hooks and i have hooks i'm ready
3: yeah no i i i I have taken i did take a pretty good chew off of one of the little guys and the adults i i just pick up they'll huff they'll puff Mm -hmm. but you know what i found is as long as you're not making them feel restrained yeah. uh, other than the occasional huffing and puffing. They, they haven't been, the giants haven't been, uh, you know, haven't even really taken a swing at me as the adults, but the babies are more than happy to bite the ever loving heck out of you. Um, mm-hmm. I've been charged a few times going into tubs. Uh, I love them. They're fun but mm-hmm. it does hurt it it's it's uh, you know the, the chew i got i didn't i don't i'm not into letting something chew on me for you know 10 20 minutes uh was probably 10 15 seconds it felt longer than that they've got you know, those teeth are big mm-hmm. um but it bled for probably a good hour it it bled quite a bit for a good hour yeah. and i had swelling i had bruising and it, you know, it, it felt like being hit by a yellow jacket or a wasp. So There's I would just... use gloves and and hooks personally. I, I've I've gone to that with the little guys because they're fast, they're hard mm-hmm. to get a hold of. Um, I'm pretty they're, they're they're a smart enough species that I'm pretty sure they're still resenting the fact that I had to um, assist feed them for a while, and they did not love it. Uh, speaking to the breeder in Canada that's, that's produced them a few times, I'm blanking on his name right now, uh, but I can look it up for you if you like. Mm-hmm. He, after producing them and going through the same thing I did with please eat, uh, you know, and, and getting this one to eat this and this one to eat that and it taking forever. Anything that he has that eats between the time they hatch and when he puts everything down for cooling. Uh, he keeps awake all winter. If they don't eat, he cools them. And he's had very good luck with them coming out of that and eating uh, when they come out of it, which I was really glad to find out because that's what I'll be doing from now on. Um, but, you know, when I was looking, I was like, okay, I've got eggs. Okay, these look like they're fertile. Okay, they look like they're probably going to hatch. I was looking it up, and and most of what you find online is is just, oh, they eat everything.
2: Yeah. No, that's they <laughs> true. no, they
3: don't. No, they don't. Not true at all. <laughs> not at all. I, you know, the adults. I haven't had too much trouble. I know you've had some trouble with some yeah. of ones you've gotten. Um, you know, they're they're a snake. I I. But it's the same thing I do with anything I get that's wild caught, um, or high stress. Uh, it's what I'm doing with the scaphiophus. I go into the room they're in because they're actually in. We have a disused bathroom. And that's where I've actually got the um, scaphiophus. Uh, I I go into the enclosure as little as possible. Yep. I almost never, and you know, I have them in racks, closed-sided racks initially, just to get them. You know, I I you know make them feel like there's nothing is going to come up on them. Um, you know, now they're in a nice big cage and they've got UV and they've got the underneath to go into and they're all settled, but, uh, they still don't love me, but mm-hmm. so the, the Scafiofus are interesting because, um, I'm probably, I'm not sure a two by four foot cage is going to work for them. I may end up going with a six foot cage now that they're yeah. feeling really good. They are they're a lot like the red beak snakes or the, like the, all the beak snakes. Um, you know, they, they look like something from attack of the mole people. And I was thinking <laughs> this is going to be this shy little thing. It's got little eyes. It's, they're always up. They're always periscoping. They're very alert. They will charge right at your face. You know, they puff out their cheeks and gape their mouth, their inside their mouth jet black. And they charge right at your face and try to bang you as hard as they can with that rostrum. And it does hurt. Um, <laughs> But, you know, you can, you can, I, you know, I'll reach a bit, you know, they'll, uh, if I'm working with them or cleaning up after them, they get furious. They come charging out of their hides and come right at you. Then they retreat. As soon as they make contact, they flee. And I, and I say furious, but they're not, I'm sure they're actually just quite terrified that they're going to be, mm-hmm. you know, eaten and they have nowhere to hide. Um, one did make contact with me with its teeth and it felt like being attacked by soft Velcro. So they're (laughs) not, they're not exactly a big threat, but, you know, the entire time, once they realize that I'm in the room, the entire time I'm in there, they thrash. They come up and they they body slam against the front of the enclosure. They're trying very hard to scare you off. And, you know, my understanding is that their reputation across most of their range is that they're, they're deadly because they act like, well, they act like a mamba. They chase, they open their mouth, inside their mouth's jet black. They act like they're not afraid of a thing. And I think they're actually terrified of everything, but they, uh, you know, that, that seems, you know, I guess if you ask people, who've grown up you know in the within their range a lot of them oh yeah they're very venomous no they're completely Mm -hmm. harmless but they don't act like it so just so that they don't hurt themselves i may end up putting them in a you know
1: that's cool having
3: to invest in some two by six foot cages and i did you find anything out about them matt i mean when you you know what
1: most of the papers that i even came across were natural herb surveys there wasn't very much out there um The animals that I had bought were actually in pretty poor shape. I ended yeah. up putting one of the three down almost immediately after acquiring it, after I took it to the vet. Um, and the other two, their pathogen load was just beyond yeah. recovery. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, but
3: just even trying to find out anything about their natural history.
1: Mm-hmm. I can send they, you the papers. That, uh, yeah, that would be great. For. I
3: found a few, but they were less than helpful in general, <laughs> um, but, but yeah, but now it's, it's, they were, they've turned out to be a lot more interesting than, uh, than I even expected. Cause they definitely have, you know, I, I knew, you know, I got them, uh, I got them in three different, I got it one male, then another male, then, then two, then a male and three females and mm. they all came in very quiet uh they all kind of perked up and you know would give a little bit of a threat to me here and there uh they were all willing to eat live like you know, mouse fuzzies and rat crawlers um i don't like to worm things immediately i like to let them settle in for a few weeks they looked in good condition figured they had something uh all of them took a plunge probably about it didn't matter which ones, which group they were in right around the three to four week mark after that little honeymoon period, they'd eaten a few times drank like typical and then uh, all of a sudden got quiet. It's like, okay, well no, you know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna wait on this. Um, I lost the one female, these guys, they had amoebas, they had, you know, two different kinds of coccidia. They had worms, they had everything. Um, I actually hit them with humatin, because it's great for amoebas and protozoas, you know, the paramamycin, and uh, right. also um, treated them with a uh, broad a broad spectrum, you know well an anti, you know an and then uh, and wormed them at the same and then wormed them. I hated to do it all, but they had everything, and I didn't want one thing to get an upper hand. And I like, said, so we lost the one. The others bounced. it took. Yeah, it took about a month to kind of right the ship to the point where I wasn't worried I was gonna walk in there and they were gonna be dead Um, And then and now they're they're You can definitely tell a difference in their muscle mass they've put on muscle uh, And every single one of them hates me um, (laughs) Or is terrified of me depending on how you want to look at it But just their instinct is to see a threat and charge right at it and they crack me up So I love it because, you know, I, I don't want them to hurt themselves thrashing around, but I love the fact that they feel good enough to, to you know, to act like complete and utter, you know, crazy psychopaths, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm, I'm sure based on what I've seen them do to me, their, their whole thing is I will charge you. I will hit you. You will think you've been bit. And while you're Trying to figure out what the heck happened, I will try to get as far away from you as possible. Because the second they hit you, they're turning around in the air and they're on their way to the back of the enclosure. you know. And I think they'd very much like to be 100 yards away from me. And, of course, they can't get that far. So yeah. <laughs> the Applegate-style enclosures may be a good one for them because they'll be yeah. able to get underneath and have a a bolt hole. So... Yeah. You know, that may be something. But, yeah, I wasn't expecting that when I got them, I wasn't expecting to have this sort of little live wire, high energy. Uh, they're not constrictors. They they act like racers. They grab it. I've seen them fling food against the sides <laughs> of the enclosure to kill it. And then they crush it with that rostrum. So they're pretty funny. So I hope I can figure them out and get babies, because I think they'll be the cutest things You know, cutest, most orderiest things on the planet. (laughs) But, you know, I, you know, I, I still worry about them, you know, and it's the same with anything I get that came out of the wild. I still worry that there's some time bomb, you Uh know, that you haven't found all of, you know, I I have a friend that was one of the few people in the state that legally still had a uh, Santa Cruz Island gopher that they'd had before and they had grandfathered in. And when they lost him, he just started losing weight. They opened him up, and I think they said probably from from pinworms. He'd had an infection probably as a much younger snake. They'd wormed him, you know, when they got him. Um, but, you know, it had, it had left scar tissue everywhere, and he'd gradually developed adhesions, and he was probably only 14 or 15 when they had to euthanize him. And, you know, they can easily live, you know, Yeah, most of that genus can easily live into their mid to late 20s. So, and he took excellent care of him. But, you know, so I always worry about him. So, you know, I think there is a little bit of a push and a need with anything wild caught, if you want to establish it, to try to get eggs on the ground. Um, Not so fast that you're risking their health in terms of their condition, but before before whatever might be lurking in the, in the back, uh, that you don't know about, you know, No, I agree hundred
1: percent. I mean, really, that's the start of a project yeah. is that first F1 generation. It's yeah. really not the wild caught animals. It's, no. it's really no. getting those F1 animals, establishing those in, in the hobby, and then pursuing those further on long run to establish yeah. a, a new species.
3: Oh, absolutely, and a hundred percent. And you know, it, it. And especially when, while there's still an opportunity. I mean, right now, I just I go on the assumption that most of the wild caught Madagascar and Africans and and um, Asians, you know, and you can you might be able to speak this. I go on the assumption that those animals are all. And maybe it's it's an illusion on my part, but I hope that each one of them is unrelated to each other. I hope mm-hmm. they were caught across. I'm hoping I'm lucky I didn't get, and I didn't get two siblings. I hope I got the ones that were,
2: yeah.
3: you know, are barely in the same subspecies, you know, from opposite ends of the mm-hmm. of their range. Because you never know when those imports are going to stop. And yep. you never know how hard they're going to be. And, you know, you know, right now, I think I've got, I know she's got, eggs. I don't know if they're fertile or not. I've got another, uh, giant mad hog, uh, gravid right now. She's just going in blue. So last year I got a clutch of 11, all fertile, all hatched, all lived. This year I got a clutch of slugs so far. Um, a clutch of seven of which three are good. And now this girl. So, you know, you can't, you know, last year, you know, after last year, I was thinking, well, maybe I've got it figured out. No, you know, I mean, no, not at all. No. I mean, it'll take three or it'll take, you know, three or four generations before, um, you know, I know what worked last year, but it, was, it may have just been luck, you know. And so I'm hoping oh. this other girl is fertile. I, you know, I hope her eggs are fertile, but I don't know. And oh. find out.
0: Yep. We'll so, find out. Yep. So this has been. You know, fantastic
3: okay sorry thank about you, my Jennifer. voice and and rambling oh, and going wrong off with on your voice wild tangents and everything else that's so. what the podcast
0: is for <laughs> present new ideas to people from yeah. people who have experience like you so thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation with us about pitch yeah. office and and and, and thank, balls.
3: thank you for being there to take all the oddballs from from me and matt oh and- no worries <laughs> man <laughs>
0: I love my oddballs. <laughs> That's pretty much why I'm in
3: this. Well, maybe Paraphimophis next year.
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe. And we'll have you back on because we got to talk about that. Brown Aranas. Look them up, people. They're a uh, massively underrated snake. Oh. Yeah. They're cool. But yeah. So if people want to get a hold of you, how would you recommend they go about doing that?
3: Uh, they can just look me up on Facebook. Uh, you know, it, getting, getting my Instagram up and running, getting... Uh, a business page up on Face, yeah, up and up going, and all is is in the works, but it's not, hasn't happened yet. So, yep. best thing is just to, you know, I don't have a list of exactly what I have available, but um, in terms of, you know, the 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 the, you know, petrofus if if I don't have it, I probably know who does, yep. even if it's the weird, the strange. The oddball localities, I, I I know most of where all that can be found. Um, for the other stuff, I sure if anyone has any insight on on any of these species or or has more information on them, I'd sure love to talk to anyone about any of the oddball stuff. Because, hey, you know that's the only yeah. way we're all gonna figure it out. You know, yep. and I want you gotta talk. I want those F three and F four generations and down the line. So, well, it's great. Thank you. Guys, so oh. much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Uh, we, we've enjoyed it. This has been all fun. Right. Oh.
3: All so, right. Take care. Yep. Sorry.
0: So you can find me at Zach Lofman on Facebook and Dr. Crawdad on Instagram. And where can they find you at, Matt?
1: Uh, you can find me on the Sarpimetra page and Instagram with Sarpamitra USA.
0: All righty. So this is the end of episode three. And thank you all for listening to another episode of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. Have a good one.